We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Esther today, Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, then the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants. The powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Sushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen, curtains fastened with cords of fine linen, and purple on silver rods, and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Muhuman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, Bagatha, Zether, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people of, I'm sorry, in order to show her to the people and the officials and she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Kashena, Shethar, Abatha, Tarshish, uh, I'm sorry, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Mukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti? according to law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, brought to her by the eunuchs. And Mimikan answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, 
but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all the women, so they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and of the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come uh, no more before the king Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. I invite you to turn your Bible this morning to First Peter, the book of First Peter. It's probably no secret by this time in the service that my voice is not uh, fully optimal, so I apologize for that and pray that it won't be too much of a distraction to our time in the Word this morning but I might be taking frequent drinks of water and clearing my throat. So. But Becky will be happy about that because she always complains that I don't drink enough water. So. Yeah. <clears throat> this morning, I've simply titled the message, Live Soberly. Live Soberly. We're not, we don't have time to look at all of First Peter this morning. Uh, Otherwise, I'd never be allowed to be back up here in the pulpit. But I do want to give a brief background to the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. The passage that we'll be looking at is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. But before we look at that, uh, we need to briefly consider what Peter has just written prior to that at the beginning of chapter 4. Now, if you're familiar with 1 Peter, uh, there's a common theme of God's grace being lavished upon us, enabling us to persevere through suffering and trials, especially from those outside of the church who are causing us to have to suffer and go through many trials because of our beliefs and because of our our steadfastness in the faith. At the same time, there's also a theme or a topic focused upon how we are to conduct ourselves not just toward those outside of the church, but also toward those inside of the church. And that is the primary theme of our, of our passage this morning in verses 7 to 11. But in the few verses prior to that, in ver- chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, this kind of sets up the, the foundation for what Paul is going to say in our passage, excuse me, Peter is going to say in our passage this morning. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased 
from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these things, they, that is the Gentiles, the unbelievers, think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. And so in this previous paragraph, Peter commands believers not to use the rest of their life living in the flesh, that is, practicing what unbelievers practice. That is, wasting, and he grounds us in the fact that they've wasted enough of their past lifetime. What do we mean, lifetime? Well, that, that time of life prior to salvation, when you were living in the flesh. For some of us, that might have only been a few years of our life. Others, perhaps, who have come to know the Lord at a later time, this is more readily you know, in our minds. It's, 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 it sinks deeper in, in the fact that we spent perhaps decades of our life doing these things that the Gentiles do. And Peter said, you've spent enough of your lifetime doing that. Move on. Do the will of God. Why? Because God stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Because the reality is, as we said, God stands ready to judge the living and the dead. And this gives hope to us as believers that although we may suffer and be judged as wrongdoers in the eyes of humans, which is a repeated theme of 1 Peter, God will ultimately judge us as perfect in Christ at the end. He says this in verse 6, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they may be judged excuse me, that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. And so although man may judge us and condemn us because we do the things of God, ultimately God will judge us righteous and perfect in Christ in the end. And it's on this basis then that as we see the commands laid out in verses 7 to 11, that we are to live soberly. This is the truth that Peter teaches us in verses 7 to 11, that because the end is near, or otherwise, because God stands ready to judge, believers should live soberly for the sake of their prayers and the glory of God. That is what Peter is wanting us to learn here this morning from uh, verses 7 to 11. And so verses 1, as we said, set the stage for what Paul writes here in verses 7 to 11. Repeatedly, Peter has laid out his expectations for life in the Christian community. We see this in uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 21, as well as in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And then just prior, in chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, Peter's laying out what his expectations for us as believers are. 
as well as his expectations for suffering for doing what is right, another common theme, as we've said here in 1 Peter. And now, once again, in verses 7 to 11 of chapter 4, Peter returns to the topic of conducting ourselves well as Christians or living soberly. There's three things I want us to take away this morning from this passage. Number one, we are to live soberly because the end is near. Secondly, we are to live soberly by strengthening your relationship with one another. And then thirdly, we are to live soberly because it affects our prayers and because it glorifies God in heaven. And so those are the three basic things I want us to take away this morning as we look at this text, and we'll expound upon what that exactly looks like and how we can apply that to our lives. Look with me at verse 7, if you would, please. Peter now writes, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer as we look into this text. Heavenly Father, may your spirit now help us, teach us, convict us, and cause us to see with great clarity what you have for us to learn this morning. By your strength we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Peter begins with this preface that the end is near. The end is near. And that's the basis or the motivation for why we are to live soberly. Now, the end that Peter is referring to is the day in which God will judge both the living and the dead. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because of what verses 4 and 5 and verse 6 have just said. God stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Therefore... We might say, the end of all things is at hand. It's come. It's, it's near. And on that basis, we are to live properly. And we'll look at exactly what that means in just a moment. And so God stands ready to judge both the living and the dead, which will either result in eternal condemnation for some, as chapter 4, verse 17 tells us, or eternal salvation if we are a believer. This is the culmination of God's plan of redemption. And it is described here in verse 7 as being very near. It is at hand. Maybe perhaps it calls to your mind what Jesus spoke about when it comes to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what? At hand. Doesn't necessarily mean that it came at that moment. It was postponed for a time, but it was at hand. He was offering it to the Israelites, to God's people. In a similar kind of fashion, Peter now writes, not necessarily talking just about the millennial kingdom, but about the fact that God stands ready to judge. That time is at hand. It is very 
near. And that should motivate how we live our lives in these last days. Now, perhaps in your mind right now, and I, I feel this with you, you, you might have to be convinced that the end is near. It doesn't, some days it feels like that, and other days it feels like it could be another you know, thousand years. Who knows? And so perhaps we often don't feel like the end is near. It seems like time has kind of ticked on, and although it could be tomorrow, it could be a long ways away. And so how, do we, how are we to think about this? Is Peter actually accurate in saying the end is near? Well, I think we have to believe that because Peter wrote it, and it's authoritative. It's God's word. But I think there's more to it than that, or a, a, even more argument from Scripture than just that basis of God's authoritative word. If you find yourself doubting that the end is near, you should consider that the apostles declared that we are in the last days. That wasn't the apostles merely being confused, you know, misinformed or self-deceived, as uh, Pastor, or James was speaking about this morning. No, they, they believed it was true, and it was true, in fact, that the last days were upon them. And so if the apostles can say that, you know, some centuries ago, then we can say that today as well, that we are in the last days. Also, another argument is the fact that the Bible teaches us that Christ's return is imminent. It could be tomorrow. And on that basis, then, we can say with surety that the end of all things is at hand. Whether it feels like it or not is, you know, Beside the point, Scripture says the end is, is near. We are in the last days. I think sometimes, another reason I think we often seem to you know, disregard the fact that the end is near or deny that is because when we think about the last times, we often think that they begin when the end time events begin to unfold. So the end isn't until you know, the rapture happens. The end isn't until um, you know, Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. That's the end. But Peter uses this word in a, more, in a broader kind of way. Peter believes that the end began when Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. That inaugurated the end times, or the, you know, the, the last days. And so those events that we often think about, you know, as we think about the eschaton, the last days, are really not the beginning, but really they're, they're kind of the end of the end, you know, the last events, so to speak. And so that's helpful to think about it in that way. If we think of the end being at hand as starting with Christ's resurrection and his ascension, then we can, with much more confidence in our mind and heart, say that the end is indeed at hand. The point then being, since God stands ready to judge, this should greatly influence how we conduct our lives as believers. If we truly believe, and we should, that the end is near, that should influence how we live our lives on a daily basis. Peter here in uh, verses 7 to 11, he gives us three commands on how we are to live in light of the fact that the end is near. And he begins by saying that believers are to be serious and watchful. And he'll tell us how we can be serious and watchful or how we can live soberly in verses 8 and 9 and 10. 
But look at verse 7. He says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The word therefore, uh, at the beginning of that second clause there, signals that what Peter says next is the main idea that holds this text together like glue. Because the end is, is near, be serious and watchful. Those are the main kind of imperatives or the main command, the main idea that, that glues this text together. And on the basis that the end is near, we're commanded to be serious and watchful. Now, maybe you, you have a different translation than the, the New King James Version. And so maybe your translation uses the verbs be alert or sober-minded. Either way, uh, it carries the same idea, idea. Serious speaks of thinking straightly or being in one's right mind in this day and age. The word sober can speak of sobriety, which is in contrast to the, the life of the Gentiles who live in drunkenness and lewdness and so forth. But in contrast, the, the believers are to be sober. And this isn't simply speaking about drunkenness, but sober-minded, uh, serious, and, and having one's wits about them as they live out their life in these last days. And so when used together, these two words, serious and watchful or alert and sober-minded, when used together, as is the case here, the idea is that we are to think rationally in these days, or as we've said earlier, think soberly in view of the fact that God stands ready to judge. More simply put, it means we are to live godly in view of of eternity, if we can boil it down to that. And so as believers, our priorities in life ought to practically look different than those of the unbeliever. And I encourage you, if they don't practically look different, then maybe a change needs to happen. What do you spend the majority of your time doing? Now, I understand, you know, we all have to go to work. You know, our children need to go to school, and so the hours of our day are filled up very quickly with, you know, the menial tasks of life, the necessary tasks of life, grocery shopping and, and the like. But outside of what, you know, that we need to do in order to survive and make a living, how are you prioritizing your life? Perhaps you don't need to work so many hours, or perhaps your children don't need to be involved as, in as many activities, perhaps you know, you don't need to watch as much entertainment. Maybe that pricks some of us in the heart. It does prick mine. And we need to reorient our thinking in light of eternity. Unbelievers don't do this. They live with no real concern for the end. And that's why they do what we see they do in 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4. They walk in lewdness and lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And they wonder, they scratch their heads and say, why don't believers live like this? You know, what's their problem? What's their issue? Unbelievers live with no real concern for the end, no thought of eternity, no thought of accountability before God, the fact that they will stand before God one day. And therefore, they spend their lives living in the flesh, simply enjoying the pleasures of this life. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
But in the end, each will give an account to Christ, we're told, in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And so in contrast, believers are to fundamentally think and behave differently. They are to be alert, to be sober, to be watchful, to be serious, not just in their minds, but how they then live out their life. What you think should inevitably you know, influence what you do. And so as we think in light of eternity, it inherently should change our behavior and how we prioritize our lives. In contrast to doing the will of the Gentiles, believers, we're told, are to spend their time doing the will of God. What is the will of God exactly? Well, we could look at many passages and scriptures to explain that and to expound upon that. But as I said earlier, Peter gives us three practical ways to do the will of God or to live soberly. Believers are to live soberly because uh, of the fact that it has an effect on their prayers. Look at with me at uh, verse 7 again. It says, Be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, depending on your translation again, uh, you might have a somewhat different kind of, uh, of verbiage here. I think the New King James, unfortunately, has done somewhat of an unfortunate job in this translation. That's not to say it's, you know, it's terrible or anything like that. But it says in prayer, as though we are to be alert and sober when we pray. But I don't think, based on the context, that that's what Peter means here. A better translation, I think, is be sober. Excuse me. A better translation is that we are to be serious and watchful for the sake <clears throat> for the sake of our prayers. And this is seen in, uh, in the English Standard Version, if you have that. And if that's the case, then, then what Peter is saying is that we are to live soberly for the purpose of having effective, an effective prayer life. Now, uh, there's a lot to be said about that, and so what I'm going to ask you to do right now is to put a pin in that thought and leave it for later on, and we'll come back to what that means. We'll tease it out in just a moment. For now, we're going to move on to the three commands that Peter gives us that help us to live soberly in the light, in light of the fact that Christ stands ready to judge. We see here in verses 8 through 11, that to live soberly means we strengthen our relationship with one another. That is how we live soberly in this age. The following commands in verses 11, uh, 8 to 11 draw an inference from the command of the end, providing us with the means to live soberly in these last days. And they all revolve around how we treat other believers. That might be interesting for us to think about. You know, often we when we think about the end, we have somewhat of a, a, a self-centered thought about, you know, how we're going to, you know, how Christ is going to stand on our behalf and how we're going to receive our glorified bodies and rule and reign with Christ. And so we might have more of an individualistic kind of idea of what it means to stand ready in light of the fact that, or live in light of the fact that God stands ready to judge. But the focus here is not the individual, per se, but really how we live in the community community of God's people. 
they revolve, these three commands revolve around how we treat one another. And I think we can infer from this that living in view of eternity is not only, as we said, about our relationship to God, but also our relationship with other believers. Living soberly means strengthening your relationship with one another. And as noted, this can be accomplished in three ways. And the first of which is this. Living soberly means maintaining love for one another. Look with me at verse 8. It says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, Peter is not accusing his audience, and neither am I, of a lack of love for one another. Rather, Peter is encouraging us to maintain the love that already exists in the household of God. Although it probably could be strengthened, it's not to say that we are loving as much as we can or ought to, or that we love one brother as much as we love another, and that surely should not be the case, but that in our humanity, in our finiteness, and in our sin nature, sometimes is the case. Although you may feel that it's not necessarily difficult to maintain a love for the brother or for a sister, there are times when that love is tested. Our love can be tested at times by both those outside of the church who treat us wrongly. That's certainly the case a lot of the time. But there's also the fact that our love can be tested by those who hurt us from within and treat us wrongly, or we perceive that they've offended us or treated us wrongly. And at that moment, it is hard. It is difficult. It takes a lot to maintain that love for that brother or sister. Interpersonal relationship problems can cause us to cease loving our brother or sister as we ought. So we need to be careful about this. For instance, your brother or sister offends you, and now you have to make a decision as to whether you are going to maintain love for them or simply walk away, whether it be you know, give them the silent treatment, don't talk to them or find another church and discontinue your fellowship with them. But that's not what Peter is telling us to do. That is not how we are to live soberly. A person who has the desire and the notion to live soberly maintains love for one another unconditionally. When a brother or sister sins against us, sure, it's difficult to maintain love for them, but the nature of true believers is to have love for one another. 1 John 4.11 teaches us this as well as verse 21 Romans 12.10 also tells us that those who love God love the brethren. The command is, after all, Peter writes, above all else, that is, above all other commands, there is this command to love one another, to maintain fervent love. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love passage? We can have all of these gifts and serve one another in all these ways. But if we have not love, what purpose, what, what effect do those ministries have 
what real thing do they accomplish without love? And so Peter writes, in accordance with where we, what we see in the rest of Scripture, that this, this command stands above all other commands, that we are to love one another. And this is consistent with the rest of Scripture, wherein love is central to Jesus' teaching, and as well as a sign of genuine salvation. Now the word uh, here translated fervent means to, consi- or to constantly maintain a love. We might at first glance think of fervent to mean zealous, you know, to have a great, a great zealous and uh, fervent love. But that's perhaps part of it, but it really means more to maintain or that is to consistently practice love. That love is to be ongoing, not intermittent, not on, off again, on again, but to be consistent. The believer's love for one another should be characterized as a constant love. Regardless of how they've offended, offended you, how, regardless how you've been wronged, we are to maintain a constant love. Matthew 24, verse 12 uh, warns that love can grow cold and must constantly be at the center of service to other believers. We must be careful to not allow it to grow cold, and we must be careful that love is the motivation for which we do the things we do for one another. Now, Peter says this at the end of verse 8. He says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, that is, for the brethren, the the members of the church. For, Peter says, love will cover a multitude of sins. What does Peter mean that love covers sins? That's an interesting idea. Peter may be quoting from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, that really says that same idea. Hatred stirs up conflict, but Love covers a multitude of sins. That's a paraphrase of Proverbs 10, 12. So perhaps Peter is quoting from this. That's very likely the case. But what does it mean that love covers sins? I think first we have to understand what it does not mean. And that is it cannot theologically mean that love conceals sins illegitimately, nor does our love uh, for others atone for either our sin or their sin that they've committed. Only the blood of Christ, Scripture teaches us, can atone for sin. So there's no atoning work here that Peter's talking about. It cannot mean that. Neither can it mean that we conceal sin so as not to address it appropriately, to not call a brother to repentance and confession of sin, or for us to forgive them of that sin, or vice versa, if we're the ones that have committed that sin. It's not saying that we should tell other people, well, if you love me, you'll conceal that sin. You won't expose it. That's not what Peter means here. Peter's point is that when we maintain a constant love for one another, we are willing to overlook the offense itself, the way in which it it has offended us for the sake of unity. does not mean that we hide our sin or other sins, but that genuine love responds to that offense with forbearance, 
with long-suffering. We don't respond angrily or in some other less-than-loving manner. Love overlooks the offense that it has been toward us. Perhaps the most you know, prime example for those of us who are married is that at times, and I'll speak of myself, in some way I, I, I offend my wife. Something I said, something the way I responded. And Kaylee, in her love, can overlook that sin. Not repeatedly bringing it up, you know, and harking on it, but say, you know what, I forgive you, it's in the past. And at times, maybe not even bring it up. Allow God's Spirit to work in that person. And in that sense, Peter then writes that a genuine, fervent, constant love will overlook the offense. It doesn't mean that, again, that the person is not culpable for their sin, nor does it mean that it should not be addressed and confession shouldn't be made, but we do not allow sin to affect how we treat them. We overlook that offense. In that sense, then, it, it also means that we do not dredge up sins in the past, sins others have committed against us, and hold it against them. That would not be covering the sin. That would not be uh, loving, as Peter has told us to do. So constant love does not dredge up past sins of others and hold it against them. Love has covered up those sins. If God has forgiven it, then who are we to hold it against them? We have to forgive and remember that God has forgiven us and our sins are as far as the east are as far as the east is from the west. If, they, if these sins have been properly dealt with, that is, proper confession has been made, then they should be left in the past and not allow them to offend us any longer or in any way. If it cannot be left in the past, if you have the tendency to dredge up those sins time and time again and hold it against a brother or, or sister, then we need to be introspective and question whether or not we truly have forgiven them of their sin or whether we're holding some kind of grudge against them. And so in that way, Paul's point then is that when we maintain a constant love for the brother or sister, we overlook the offense so as to maintain unity. Number two, not only do, are we to live soberly by maintaining a constant love for one another, but number two, we live soberly by means of showing hospitality to one another. Look with me at verse 9. Peter writes, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Hospitality toward one another is the second means Peter gives in this passage by which believers are to live soberly in light of the fact that God stands ready to judge, seen in the fact that the end is at hand. We know from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, we just finished a study in 1 Timothy on Sunday evening, so if you were a part of that, you'll recall that pastors are required to be hospitable. We see that reiterated in Titus chapter 1, verse 8. But it's not just pastors that are called to be hospitable. Here, from 1 Peter 4, verse 9, we learn that believers 
general believers, all believers, are required to be hospitable toward one another. According to Romans chapter 9, verse 13, genuine love is given to hospitality. Said another way, if you're not given to hospitality, do you have genuine love for the brother or sister? If you don't, this love is a pseudo-love, a false love, a disgenuine love. True love is hospitable. The kind of hospitality Peter commands probably does not necessarily have to do with putting up outside visitors uh, in your home, but having one another in homes for meals and fellowship. Now, that's not to say, and Scripture does teach us in other places, that we are to be hospitable to the stranger and to house them, to lodge them, to provide for their needs, especially other ministers, you know, itinerant ministers or missionaries who need a place elsewhere were commanded to show that kind of hospitality. But given the context, it seems that Peter is specifically talking about sharing fellowship with a brother and sister in Christ around the table with a meal. The very fact that it's other brothers and sisters in Christ lends us to think that because, of course, you know, they're not traveling around. They likely don't need lodging if they're you know, attending the same church with you, although <clears throat> perhaps there is a time when that's necessary. And so the kind of hospitality Peter has here in mind is having one another into your home, sharing fellowship around the table or over a cup of coffee. You might remember that Lydia provided hospitality to Paul and his companions in her home, and Priscilla and Aquila also lodged Paul for an extended amount of time, maybe even 18 months. He lodged with them. Notice that Peter says that hospitality is to be offered without grumbling, without grumbling. Believers are not to be grumblers or complainers. For all of you young people out there, you've heard this verse before, Philippians 2.14, do all things without what? Grumbling or complaining. We may typically think of children as the ones who grumble. You know, they're the grumblers. But, matter of fact is, grown-ups can grumble as well. Perhaps, we tend to do it in a more sophisticated manner. You know, we don't drop on the floor and throw a temper tantrum, but we can grumble. We need to be careful that we do not do this. Why would Peter, we might ask ourselves, why would Peter say this? You know, why, you know, isn't everyone just given to hospitality? You know, we all are waiting to do it without grumbling. Well, as all of us know, hospitality can especially be difficult when it requires <clears throat> housing someone for any amount of time, as it is not always convenient for our busy lives. Even if it doesn't include housing an overnight guest, the planning and execution of having people consistently into your home can be exhausting. It can be tiresome. And so offering hospitality requires great sacrifice of time, perhaps finances and energy. Yet, let me remind us, at the same time, it can provide rich blessing. 
And I think that's what Peter's point is here. Don't do it with grumbling, but recognize the rich blessing that comes from having someone into your home, getting to know them, sharing fellowship with them, and edifying one another in that context. Maybe um, I can think of one particular person who has shown extended hospitality to a family and in return has been greatly blessed by them. And that's a prime, excellent example of what it means to show hospitality and the fruit of it. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you feel that your schedule is too busy to offer hospitality. Perhaps you're too embarrassed to have anyone over because, you know, oh, the house is messy. Can't get it all together. It's got to look perfect. Or perhaps you're too private of a person to have someone into your home. And if that's you, let me gently encourage and challenge your thinking on this matter. In light of the fact the end is near, what is more important than offering hospitality to the brethren? Is it more important that you do, you know, you fulfill all your busy schedule and events and fill it up in that way? Is it more important that no one sees the mess of your house or that, you know, you keep the privacy of your life at home? Or is it more important that you show hospitality in light of the fact that God is returning to judge? May I encourage all of us to open our hearts to the brethren and welcome them. Receive them into your home. Show them hospitality. The third and final command that Peter gives us that helps us to live soberly is this. Living soberly means serving one another. Look with me at verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter here gives the third means by which believers are to live soberly. It begins by saying that every believer has received a gift. Each of you, each one of us, from the oldest to the youngest, the scriptures mention various kinds of gifts that the Spirit gives us. We see uh, at least two lists, uh, one in Romans as well as one in 1 Corinthians. But I don't believe either of these lists are exhaustive. What I mean is that this is kind of a summary of the kinds of gifts that God's Spirit bestows on his people. But there are other kinds of gifts that we can use to minister to one another. Think with me just for a moment, even today, in our service this morning. The various kinds of ways in which people served us and therefore ministered to God and glorified him, whether it be being playing an instrument or the piano or leading singing or reading scripture or teaching a class, or perhaps you're the person that simply loves to encourage people. You have that kind of spirit, a way of giving a good word in a difficult time. Proverbs talks about that, how a, a word given in the right due season is like honey 
It's soothing to the soul. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you have more of you know, physical abilities, talents that can be used to minister to God's people. If you don't know what gift that God has given you, uh, sometimes people get caught up in this. You know, they scratch their heads and think, how do I determine what gifts I have received? Sometimes that keeps us from doing anything. Let me encourage you in that matter to not let that discourage you from just doing something. It's been said that the best way to determine your gift is to just start serving somehow. And I believe that wholeheartedly. I don't think we have to you know, wait and pray and ask God to reveal you know, in some supernatural way what our gift is. Just start doing something. Find a way, whether it's simply sweeping the floors or cleaning up after a service, do something. You will quickly find whether you are suited for that ministry or task, or perhaps you'll find that, you know what, I'm best used in some other capacity. And that's fine. Move on to what God has for you next. Don't get stuck on trying to determine what exactly your gift or gifts are. Just do something. That's our duty, as Peter writes here. As each one has received a gift, and that's a matter of fact, the main verb here is minister it, use it. Don't neglect it, but use it. Don't withhold it from others, but use it to serve one another. I was just thinking about it now. You know, what might be one reason that we withhold from ministering? Maybe because we don't have a genuine love for someone. We've been disgruntled in some way. We said, that's it. I'm out of here. Or I'm not going to serve anymore. You know, I'm not appreciated or whatever. Or, you know, this brother or sister said this or that. That could keep us from fulfilling this third command, which is to serve or minister that gift to one another. And so the duty of every believer is to use their gift to serve one another. Thereby, as we know from Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, when they use that gift, they are building up the body of Christ, edifying it, causing it to grow and to flourish. Note the means, though, of this gift that you've been given is the manifold grace of God. That is the origin of this gift, the means by which you have this gift merely on the basis of God's diverse or manifold grace. God's gifts are truly varied. We've seen that even this morning in people, the way that people have served. And that is a blessing. That is a great blessing. That God distributes, distributes various gifts through his spirit, and that is seen through his multifaceted character uh, trait of grace. The church needs that diversity of gifts in order to function. You know, the common passage we know, you know, if, if everyone wants to be the eye or the ear or the foot, you know, how would the body function? And so that very, the various kinds of gifts are indeed a blessing and a necessity. And the implication of this is that we need your gift. We need your gift. We need your gift. Without it, the church will not be as effective as it could be. Don't withhold 
the gift that God has given you. Peter gives us a reason why we shouldn't do this, because he says we are to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What is the manifold grace of God? The gift that he's given you. What are, we to be, what are we to do with that gift? We are to be good stewards of that gift. Because we receive these gifts from the abundance of God's grace, it is no means to boast. What can I say except that God has given it to me, and I am called to use it? Peter also mentions that we need to be good stewards of God's grace, which means that the failure to use these gifts is actually a failure to be a good steward of God's grace. When you do not use your gift, you are failing to steward the blessing and the bestowal of God's grace in your life. That should challenge our thinking and our behavior, how we steward the grace that God has given us. Now, Peter, in verse 11, goes on to say, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. The oracles of God refer uh, to the words of God, God's spoken and revealed word. And so the idea here is that there's, broadly speaking, two categories of gifts that God gives. There are speaking gifts, and there are serving gifts or ministering gifts, both let me emphasize, are equally important. Both are equally important. Those who have the gift of teaching, Peter is telling us, are not to speak anything that is contrary to the word of God. So if they have that gift of teaching, that teaching must be in line with the oracles of God, with the very words of God. To speak anything otherwise or to claim to have you know, some new revelation, some divine revelation from God that is contrary to God's word is a, an abuse of the, God, of the gift, the manifold grace of God that he has given us. Furthermore, those who have the gift of serving or, or ministry are to rely upon the strength of God. And that's to be said, too, of those who have the gift of teaching you know, the teaching gifts. It's not as if, you know, one requires God's strength and the other does not. But in both cases, those who are teaching or those who are serving in some other capacity must depend upon God's strength. They cannot do it on their own. Whether we teach or serve, we rely continually upon God's strength to serve other believers. And so, therefore, it's no reason for us to boast Now, Peter has listed out for us three ways in which we can live soberly. First, we live soberly by maintaining a constant love for one another. Secondly, we uh, live soberly by, um, by being hospitable to one another. And thirdly, we live soberly by means of serving one another. And Peter now gives us two results or two purposes for which we are to live soberly. And that is seen in our third and final point here this morning, which is this, live soberly so that your prayers are effectual and God is glorified. Remember the uh, pin that you were supposed to put in earlier in the text in verse 7? Look back there now, if you would. In light of what we've just read and learned about how we are to live soberly, Peter tells us that if we live soberly, 
or we are to live soberly for the sake of our prayers. So how we treat one another in the church affects our prayers. Look quickly just back at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. He says, Husbands, likewise dwell with them, that is, their wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that, or so that, your prayers may not be hindered. Also, uh, look at uh, verse 11 uh, and 12 of the same passage there. It says, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But, what does the text say? The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so based on these texts and even others that we find in Scripture, there is in some measure a way in which how we treat one another affects the effectiveness of our prayers or hinders our prayers. If you want to have an effective prayer life, then you need to be strengthening your relationship with the believers. Otherwise, Peter warns, our prayers may be hindered. And in this day and age, in all ages, we do not want our prayers to be hindered. We want God's ear to be open in this time of difficulty. And especially think of Peter's audience. In the time of suffering, of trials, you want God to be looking the other way, so to speak? No. You want his ear to be bending down and listening to your cries. Finally, the last result or purpose for which we are to live soberly is this, so that God may be glorified. Because, as Peter writes, to whom belongs or is the glory in the dominion forever and ever. God is due all glory in all things through Jesus Christ. And so, the purpose of our service to one another is to bring glory to God in everything, Peter says. And I think this indicates that God's glory is to be the priority in all matters of life, not just the three that we mentioned this morning, you know, loving one another, serving one another, showing hospitality to one another, but in all areas of life, God is to receive our glory. And so as we close this morning from this end of the passage here, we learn that God is glorified through Christ. How is he glorified through Christ? When Christ's body is effectively serving one another. When we fail to live soberly by serving one another and strengthening our relationships with one another in the three ways that Peter has given to us this morning, we fail to give God the glory that he is due. And so, as we close, let me remind us that because the end is near, believers should live soberly for the sake of their prayers and the glory of God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this time together in your word. May it, your spirit cause us to eat these words as one of the Old Testament prophets wrote. May we consume it and cause it to affect our lives today and even our fellowship now as we go together uh, this week to serve you. In Christ's name we pray.